This is Positively Farming Media. I'm so fortunate to care for two senior farm dogs, and choosing a treat they love that supports their aging joints used to be tough. But now that Grubbly Farms offers Vermies, it's so easy. Many popular dog treat brands contain low-quality animal protein from various sources and unnatural fillers that can cause allergy and tummy troubles. Vroomies are loaded with healthy grub protein from black soldier fly grubs and only good things. They're soft chews that are baked in the USA with wholesome natural ingredients like sweet potato and pumpkin and antioxidants for mobility and fiber for digestion. And I don't know about you, but my senior dogs need the support of daily vitamins and medicine. And when given with Vroomies, they get what they need without anything that can cause them more issues in the long run, which makes Grubbly's Dog Snacks Vroomies a great choice for my aging best friends. Save 25% off your first order of Grubbly Farms Vroomies with code DRINKINFARM25 at grublyfarms.com. Welcome to We Drink and We Farm Things. This is the farm comedy podcast that is an adult happy hour for the farming community. We drink adult beverages, talk about the ups and downs of farming things, and give zero fucks about not having the perfect farm life. We keep it real with you and share the mistakes we've made and what we've learned so you can feel less alone in this farm thing. We drink things, we farm things, we drink and farm things. Oh, hey there, Sam. Oh, hey there, Bev. How's it going? It's, um, it's going. It's been, <laughs> gosh, you know, so yesterday I went to a Gordon Foods show, which... Oh, that's right. Yeah, it, it was really interesting because, like, being on this farming side of things and then getting into, like, restauranting and hospitality and then seeing what, like, big food distributors are doing, it was a really, like, the whole day was just kind of, like, eye-opening and my brain's still kind of buzzing from, like, all the all the things that I'm thinking about for, like connecting producers and distributors and restaurateurs because I think the I think that eating local thing is just it's a little more complicated than like each individual like part sees because they don't see all the other parts so it was a good day I'm really glad I went like I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next one because they're doing another one in Columbus so I'll go to that one too because they give us a discount on our orders when we go to the food shows so <laughs> <laughs> so I saw something in your story about you had, I forget the brand, but it was eggs. And you said you ordered some hard boiled eggs for your restaurant. Yeah. Tell me more about that interaction. Cause it looked like you got some cute swag too. Yeah, I did. So that was Vital Farms. And what's really cool about their egg cartons is you can actually like put in the farm code that's on the side of your egg carton and it'll pop up like a live feed video of oh. the farm where your eggs came from. So it's like a it's like a distribution company for small egg producers. So it allows consumers to get the transparency that they've been asking for. And you know, not everyone will go look at the cameras on the farm and not everyone cares necessarily. But like the ones that do care, they get to have that. But the small producer doesn't have to put in all the 
infrastructure and technology and work to provide that transparency. Because I think not to like oversimplify a whole huge big concept, but at the end of the day, I think that's where some of the the disconnect is, is like I grew a bunch of lettuce for our our coffee shop that is just going to have sandwiches. And I thought like lettuce is easy. I can totally grow that. But then when I looked into like what I really need to do to document in case there's a foodborne illness issue or anything else, like it actually just makes more sense to let like a distributor take care of documenting all of that. And so they they can actually provide what is important to each individual restaurant or restaurateur from a local standpoint. Cause like at the end of the day, you get to define what local is to you, but they also can like provide what it is that's important to you based on like metrics, because they, they have the, they have the capacity to do that. Like, whereas when I'm trying to source something like, I can only Google so many different farms and companies and try to time ingredients to show up. And it's, it's complicated. Like (laughs) my, my, my whole brain was like, just like buzzing all day yesterday. Also, I mean, I drove to Pittsburgh and back in the same day. So that that's a long day was also big. Yeah, it was a big day. It was about, it was a 17 hour day. I actually, I didn't have to drive my partner, Wade, he drove. So I joked that he let me be the passenger princess for (laughs) the day. Hey, that works, right? It, it does. It <laughs> totally works. Yeah. So it was just fascinating. So yeah, thanks for letting me talk about something so like current and uh, and and new in my life right now. Yeah, no, I saw that and I um, selfishly wanted to learn more about that post. So now everybody knows. But before we dive into some like heavier topics today. That's why, one, I wanted to ask you about that to start off with something light and fun. And two, I do want to tell people about my coffee today <gasps> oh. because it's special. I tried something new. So this isn't a new concept. It's called pour over coffee. Oh, that's what mine is this morning too. Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. So it's not a new concept, but I got a membership with Thrive Market because as a new mom, I'm becoming more and more neurotic about what is in food that I will soon be feeding my son because he's on purees right now. And even with that, I'm a little neurotic about that and ingredients. So I wanted to look at some healthier snack alternatives, even for myself. So I got a subscription with Thrive Market, got my first delivery. And one of the first things I got was from Good, or was it Copper? No, Copper Cow, words, Copper Cow Company. And it's a lavender pour over coffee and it is delicious so if you like floral flavors you get like five I think five batches in there I highly recommend that one they have some non-floral ones too they think they have like vanilla and regular so there's a little free plug for copper cow company but it's so delicious I am definitely gonna order more of that and it comes with little packets of like just cream and sugar too that's like in a it's not in a dried form either. It's like a semi-liquid form and you put it in and it's not full of a bunch of crap, which I love. It's real sugar. So if you don't want real sugar, that's that's one thing. But yeah, I really liked it. So I wanted to share it since we don't talk about our beverages very often anymore. When we do do something exciting or have something, we will still share that. Yeah, I love that. So how do you do your pour over? What is your pour over method? <laughs> 
So it does kind of give you a couple options on the label. So today I did the Vietnamese method, which is adding four ounces at a time. And I did do it with my Keurig. So I pressed the four ounce button once and then let it sit for a little while. And then I pressed it again and then I called it good. So my cup wouldn't be overflowing. (laughs) That was a good idea. How do you do yours? So I have a Chemex. It's like a carafe like a glass carafe thing. And so I do, like, I put it on a scale and I weigh my grounds. I have a, I have a real burr grinder now. So I grind to like a very specific grind. And then I have a kettle, like an electric kettle that warms up the water. And I've gotten used to hearing what it sounds like when it's cooled off enough because you're not supposed to pour totally boiling water over over the grounds because it'll burn and scorch the beans. So yeah, it's been kind of interesting. And I I must do something kind of similar. It's not, I don't know what the different methods are, but I usually pour over my beans like three or four times. So the initial one, I do a bloom and like let all the gases escape. So like all like, like bubbles up. And then I add about 120 to 150 grams of water at a time. And it's usually like four or five pours of coffee and I stretch in between while it's while it's draining so it's like it's become part of like a morning ritual type of thing when I have time for it I don't always have time to stand there and make pour over so I've I've started giving myself more grace in the morning and thinking about my routines as um, an opportunity or a tool to use when I want it or need it but not something that I have to feel guilty about when I don't do it right yeah. So I still I still drink drip coffee like three mornings out of the week at least. Because <laughs> I woke up and I just like was not in the mood. <laughs> yeah. No, I I most of the time just use my Keurig for like regular coffee, but I tried this and it comes like in a pre everything's prepackaged in that too, which is great because I'm not even when I'm not in a rush, I feel like I still kind of am in a rush. So mm-hmm. It's nice to have that convenience factor there, too. But, yeah, this is a special treat because I think it was, like, $12 a box for five. So it's a very special treat. <laughs> yeah. My pour-over, uh, it's just, like, with our regular coffee. So I just, like, use our regular coffee beans and everything. So it doesn't cost us anything extra. But it is a little bit more labor-intensive. It's not nearly as convenient. So that's why I don't necessarily do it every day because it it does it does take more time. So... Yeah, that was good that you pointed that out. I think I think we kind of have to like pick those things that help us to feel like we took care of ourselves in the morning so we have the space and capacity for when something comes at us that is totally shocking and anger-inducing and upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know that my coffee method helps with that right now, but like I'm just constantly in survival mode at this point that's just the phase of life I'm in I don't yeah oh yeah get a lot of self-care that actually is helpful (laughs) at this time but that's just a phase right so yes it's like the moon it all it it all has its phases Mm -hmm. oh my gosh I love it so before we dive into the nitty-gritty here who are drink peeps this episode All right, our drink peeps this episode are Ashley Kiernan and Elizabeth Steves, and they are at Ashley Kiernan on the Instagram and at 
steal O2 over on the Instagram. And Ashley Kiernan has a flower farm. Well, not a flower. Yeah, she is. It's a flower farm or like a florist. She does like wedding flowers. It's it's so awesome. And that's over at Terry Grove. So if you haven't seen her do her florist thing, it's it's pretty fantastic. <laughs> Love it. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> All right. So today... I think this is a really nice segue because we just did an episode called That's Not a Weed, It's a Superfood. And in that, you know, it had like foraging vibes. So today we're going to talk about wild foraging. And, you know, you might have seen it kind of explode on social media a little bit. There's been an increased popularity, especially with homesteaders, self-sufficiency. So in this episode, we're going to learn about why foraging is awesome who's benefiting from the resurgence of it. And then actually, we're going to talk about laws around foraging. So that seems a little weird, right? There's there's laws against foraging, but they actually have really deep-rooted yuck attached to it of classism and racism. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, which is why we want to start a little lighter with this episode, because we'll get you all riled up and then we'll say, see ya. So yeah. <laughs> But it's important to know this because like you and I were talking, I think it was probably a couple months ago about this. And then I was like, oh, yeah, it's also like illegal to collect rainwater in some states. And I don't think you had any idea. And, and you know, it's nobody's fault when you don't know certain things like this, because in in my brain and it's probably just because of, you know, my privilege that uh, this all seems ridiculous to me that there are laws around a lot of this stuff like rainwater collection and foraging. So we're going to just talk about some of the history there today, because the more you know, you know, do, 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 do with the rainbow and star, you know, so it's important to know this stuff. And it's okay if you don't. Yeah, um, yeah. Because we're going to tell you. Exactly. And then in our after hours today, which is going to be over on the Patreon for the $5 level and above, we're going to go a little deeper into like some of the foraging that we've done and some of the thoughts that we have about the different sort of barriers to some people and requirements and what's expected and all of that. So be sure to go pop over to patreon.com slash drink and farm. And yes, it's still at slash drink and farm because I haven't changed that one yet. And join us on the Patreon so that you can hear that conversation because it's going to be a good one. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. So foraging for berries nuts, mushrooms, fruit, seaweed, and other wild foods has been just all over social media. There is this really great article. It's a journal article from the Fordham Urban Law Journal that defines foraging, and it's called Food Law Gone Wild, the Law of Foraging. And he defines foraging as the act of searching for and harvesting wild foods for sustenance, which... Like all of those things that I just mentioned, berries, nuts, mushrooms, fruits, like those are all things that are healthy for you. They're good. They're nutritious and they're free because they're growing out there in the wild. So self-sufficiency <laughs> and homesteading became, you know, like hashtag goals over on Instagram and other social media once we all kind of got really bored during COVID-19 lockdowns. So you saw a lot of people getting chickens. You saw people you know, planting gardens. Some of this might have been, you know, due to the subsequent supply chain issues as well. 
never hurts to, you know, know how to grow your own food. It doesn't have to be a fear thing. It's just a good life skill to know. And if you're interested in it, do it. But it totally makes sense that wild foraging would be the next step here in the journey of self-sufficiency. Yeah, it really does. So it's really important to say that too, just because like, I don't want anybody to think that we're talking about foraging or self-sufficiency as something that's like inherently good or inherently bad. It's something that either you enjoy or you don't enjoy or something you want to do or you don't want to do. So I'm kind of thinking about you know, like the the hobbies you choose or lifestyles you choose instead of thinking them as something that has like a moral, like standing on it as just mm-hmm. is. So. Sure. There is nothing worse than finding broken eggs in the nesting box. To prevent this tragedy, I use Eaton Pet and Pastures premium nesting box pads. Using nesting box pads gives my hardworking hens a soft, safe place to lay, which means I find more eggs intact when I go to collect them. And when it comes time to refresh the nest, cleanup and setup is so fast and easy. When combined with Eaton Pet and Pastures hemp bedding, coop cleanup day is simple. So I'm back to relaxing and watching chicken TV in no time. Make the switch today to Eaton Pet and Pastures premium nesting box pads made for a happy pet, healthy planet, and is a farm choice that aligns with my values. Get 20% off your first order from Eaton Pet and Pasture by going to eatonpetandpasture.com and using code ZeroClux20. So yeah, so how does foraging relate to today's conversation? So foraging relates to today's conversation because what we're really going to dive into is what has historically made foraging like so really amazing and who's like historically foraged uh, and why. And we'll also talk about when foraging became something that the law would get involved in. And womp womp. I know, like <laughs> I said, the law. And also, you know, I think a lot of people probably don't know that harvesting wild foods could put you in legal trouble even today because of some of this historical context. So, like, if you've ever picked a blackberry or an apple or a dandelion in a public park, like, there's a really good chance that you actually broke the law without even knowing it. That's so interesting to me. But anyways, before I just get on a soapbox, I'm going to try to save my soapbox for the Patreon. So if you want to hear us rant a little, (laughs) make sure you go over there. But let's talk about the good stuff. So let's talk about why foraging is awesome first before we get into some dark, twisty stuff. So before we start... We do want to remind you, though, that kind of like in the superfood episode we just did about weeds, foraging can be dangerous if you don't know what you're looking at because some wild foods are poisonous. So a really good Instagram person to follow that's very reputable in the foraging community is at Black Forager over on Instagram. So um, go check that account out if you want to start learning more. Don't go out and just start eating random, you know, nightshade type things that would be bad yeah or mushrooms or anything else but yeah you don't need to be tripping you know (laughs) or dying you don't need to be tripping or dying (laughs) right or tripping and dying no judgment if you like to go on trips but anyways so indigenous and low-income communities have gathered ingredients 
for meals this way for a very long time. Not just because it's part of their culture or ancestral traditions, foraging can help fill in the gaps in places historically that are underserved by supermarket options. So there are a variety of reasons why one might forage. And like we talked about in episode 230, that's in That's Not a Weed, It's a Superfood. Some wild and feral foods can create uh, can provide greater nutritional balance and benefits than produce bought in the stores or even just some of the, you know, snacks like the go down the chip aisle or go eat a dandelion. You're probably going to get more nutrition from a dandelion than you will from the chip aisle, even though chips are probably a little more delicious. I was going to say the crunchy factor is pretty tempting for me. But so one of the things to think about when you're thinking about foraging and who's benefiting from this increase in popularity, I think the group that we can see the most are the hashtag influencers of foraging because it has become something that once was kind of rooted in culture and ancestral tradition and also need, you know, depending on where you were in your life or where your family was in their lives at that time. It's now embraced by everyone from like world-renowned Scandinavian chefs to environmentalists that are just kind of keeping an eye out for something that might be edible while they're out on a hike. Or I guess I should say environmentalists. A, a better word is outdoor enthusiast. That's what I meant to say. That's that's a better description. People on like Naked and Afraid. You know. Oh yeah, there we go. Yeah, like our friend uh, Jake Nodar. He and I chat on Instagram, which is fun, a funny thing to say because I've never seen Naked and Afraid, but... something else too to keep in mind is that like ramps morels oh my god i cannot say this mushroom chanterelles i don't think i said that i mean that's better than i my attempt would have been so we'll go with it okay i i feel like i really messed that up i should have looked up how to pronounce that but these foods are precious to foragers and they've also been a part of like rural lifestyle foraging as like a way to make additional income or add more nutrition, you know, to their diets and things. But now those items are popping up on trendy menus with really high prices. So it's kind of like taking these foods that that are special. They're delicious. They're amazing. And you still only have access to them if you're willing to put in the work to go find them or had access and knew where to find them. So that's another thing too, is like a lot of the knowledge of where to find these things is, you know, passed down through friend groups or generations and stuff. And obviously you're not going to find a morel just like growing on the sidewalk in New York City. That's just, that's not the <laughs> right. conditions in which they grow in. <laughs> but now there's people who are seeing it as something that's like opportunistic. So they're trying to find all that, all, all of that information and go, forage all of it and then, you know, selling it to all these high-end restaurants. And then people with money are able to go to these restaurants and enjoy these things. And there's, it's becoming less available to the groups that always enjoy Yeah, right. That's interesting perspective on that. Yeah. Because it's like you want, there's a balance of, yeah, go hustle, make that money. And then, like you said, taking from, you know, something that somebody else might enjoy at just the cost of effort 
So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into some of the stuff that really gets my blood boiling. So there are actually, like we mentioned before, some really kind of racist and classist roots to anti-foraging laws. So we'll start from the beginning. The practice of foraging is actually largely banned or discouraged, shame on you, within U.S. cities, which hosts more than 60% of the U.S. population. And they're relatively limited green spaces, hindering residents from collecting the healthy, free food growing close to their home. So the current legal ramifications of gathering food descend from American imperialism, says Balin Lincoln. Lincoln? Linekin? We'll go with Linekin. That's what it looks like. I like that. But anyways, Balin is a food lawyer, and he's a professor at George Mason University School of Law, and he studied foraging legislation, which kind of sounds like, you know watching paint dry but somebody's got to study it (laughs) (laughs) but who even knew this was a whole body of legislation but it is so he says that the origin of anti-foraging laws have some very onerous subtext and onerous subtext and are racist and classist so why are they racist and classist so they actually started out around the time we came over you know when i say we like Europeans came over to push Native Americans off lands desired by white settlers. They, they came in and they were like, hey, no, you can't forage anymore, which is like the most ridiculous thing in my brain <laughs> for them to go to these Native Americans and say, no, you can't forage anymore when that's literally been their whole lifestyle. Like the audacity. <laughs> That is pretty audacious. That's like my new favorite word right now. We'll have to talk about that later. I don't want to get off on audacious or an audacity tangent. But yeah, that was really kind of the start of legislating foraging in North America, in the United States, kind of as it is today. And then that continued when, after the Civil War, Southern states established anti-foraging laws to prevent newly freed slaves from being able to provide sustenance for themselves and their families. So basically, they were like, you have all these skills and you're capable of doing all these things, but if you are doing it for yourself, that's not okay. So now we're going to make it illegal so that only certain people can gather or grow uh, or do these things so that they can take care of their families. But um, if you don't own land where you can do those things or you don't have these licenses so that you can do these things, you're not allowed, even though it's just like literally growing in the forest and you can randomly run into it while on a walk. Right. Again, the audacity. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And then, okay, so we get beyond that, right? Later, conservation advocates advocates pushed anti-foraging laws in newly created state and national parks as a way of protecting land from rural white residents who the conservation-minded urban elites viewed as incapable stewards of their own lands. Again, the audacity. Like, that should just be, I don't know, maybe we need a shirt that just says the audacity. I don't know. (laughs) But honestly, like, how, how rude. Like, come on this just keeps evolving so now we have these laws that were grounded in colonialism racism and classism like triple whammy yep and the laws that we still have on the books they don't exclude people like based specifically on race and class but they do typically rely on fears that foragers will damage or destroy 
plant life. So like the reason why you can't go into the state park down the street and collect ramps, even though so ramps are like a really popular foraging food and there are blankets of them everywhere out here. But in the state parks, you can't collect them because they're afraid that they would get over harvested and then suddenly not available anymore, which I mean, I guess when you're talking about not people not having the plant knowledge, you know, and maybe the reverence for the plant and the ecosystem, uh, I can see a, I can see why that is the fear. But that doesn't necessarily make it right. So right, because like if we go back to the beginning of the conversation when we were talking about you know people capitalizing on all those yummy things you can find in the woods, selling them to high end restaurants, this one makes a little more sense to me. Because you can't control greed. And that's, I don't think it's so much of a, you know, I think it could be hidden behind, you're going to ruin the environment. But really, it's almost like a protection against greed in those areas. It feels like, anyways, that maybe that's at least a component of it. So this one I kind of understand a little better if we're talking about it from like a state and national park perspective. But if we get out of the state and national park perspective and we're just talking like you're walking through, you know, Washington, D.C. and you're at a park, that's where it starts hurting my brain and not making so much sense. I can totally see that. You know, one of the things that I thought about is with this like, you know, perspective or fear that other people will overharvest or ruin these like beautiful protected spaces. I've been kind of inspecting myself Like, what stories am I telling myself about what other people may or may not know or what knowledge or skills or whatever may they have? I can be right, but it could be wrong, too. And so, like, which one is, which one's right? Is it protecting for the sake of protecting? Or is it allowing people freedom because they're inherently worthy of freedom? Like... I'm not saying that there's a right or a wrong answer, but that's just kind of what goes, what's been going through my mind when I start thinking about things like this. Right. Yeah. And my brain just goes, I think, to there are good people and there are people that are inherently bad, that don't want to improve themselves, that are greedy. So they do kind of spoil it for the people that do want to learn and do good things and not do things like over harvest. Like I think that's where it gets complicated in my brain because it's like you can be, I'm doing air quotes, bad and, and make the improvements to be good, you know, and I know those words are subjective too, but there are people that are just going to wallow in that space and kind of ruin it for everybody. So it is, it does get hard to make like a blanket law. You know, we get stuck making blanket laws that never really get rolled back because of that kind of yin and yang, I guess. Yeah, I can totally see that. And one of the things, too, that I've been kind of trying to think about, and and I'm not saying that my perspective is the right one. I'm more using it as like a way to think about myself and like what I like what kind of questions am I asking myself and what are my answers to like think introspectively about these things. And one of the things I've been trying to kind of think about is whether or not there are people who are inherently bad or if so many bad things have happened for whatever reason that because of like Maslow's hierarchy, they don't have 
the capacity to go for that like self-improvement or self-awareness or and so it's hard because like I think I do think some people get get labeled as inherently bad when they make bad decisions but like when you think about it like it was just a bad choice you know like do they have to pay for that for forever or like what's and I'm not saying that there's a line at which they do and they don't um, because that is a whole nother like complicated conversation but it's kind of made me think a little more empathetically I think is the word I'm looking for. And just kind of trying to be a little less judgmental because I realize how how I default to that judgment. But then I kind of like try to back myself up and think about, you know, like, well, what could have caused this? And so like, as you can hear, it's not, like, it's not simple. <laughs> right, right. So that's why we get stuck with these these blanket laws. But then then you like turn around and, there was like this elderly Illinois man who was fined for picking dandelion greens in Chicago area parks. And then there was another forager who was fined for picking edible berries in suburban Washington, D.C. So, you know, that seems fairly innocent to me in comparison to somebody going and pillaging a whole large area for like ramps and, and taking the opportunity away from other people. So I think that's where it gets tough to kind of get these laws specific enough and in different areas. Cause then, you know, we're talking about different cities. We're talking about different States and they can all have their own laws. So it's very, very complicated, but I mean, Las Vegas, Orlando, Dallas, Houston, New York, Philadelphia, where you were just at, uh, Birmingham. No, you were in Pittsburgh, not Philadelphia. No, I was in Pittsburgh. <laughs> I was like, wait, you were in the other P <laughs> Birmingham, but also and then San Antonio. So these, Cities have actually banned people from sharing food with the homeless and less fortunate on top of, you know, anti-foraging laws. So that's just really like, that's where it doesn't make sense. Like, it's hurting my brain for multiple reasons. Like, why do we have these silly laws? Like, we can't, there's so much waste in, in restaurants. Why can't that food be given to the homeless if it's still you know, edible and doesn't have somebody else's saliva on it. Like, it's just make it make sense, people. <laughs> yeah. You know, so interestingly enough, there actually is a bill that was introduced in Congress. And Karen from Just Grow Something podcast has talked about it uh, in one of her Instagram reels. And I believe that she's talked about it in an episode also of her podcast. But it's uh, HR 6251. It was introduced like end of 2021, if I'm remembering right. But it's the Food Donation Improvement Act. And that thing, like the reason why restaurants and supermarkets weren't allowing, you know, like unhoused people to have the food that was going to go to waste is because of liability. So if someone was to become ill because of something that they ate that the grocery store or the restaurant was going to throw away, they could technically hold that company liable. So the way to get around that is grocery stores and restaurants can pair with a not-for-profit that is specifically for food security. And then the not-for-profit covers that liability so that, because not-for-profits are protected from being 
held liable for things like that. It's a Good Samaritan Act kind of thing. And so that bill is kind of working its way through the legislation. It hasn't really done anything recently that I know of, but it's something to keep an eye on because like things like that could make it easier to distribute that food to those who need it or could use it the most without it going to waste. And it could be beneficial, you know, to to everyone in a lot of different ways, less less waste, less landfill, you know, things like that. So, yeah, cool. That's nice that that is hopefully on the horizon because that makes a lot of sense to do that. Yeah, it does. And, you know, one of the things that I have been just kind of like thinking about myself. Clearly I've been like really introspective lately. So I have a few questions (laughs) that I just listed. And, and like I said, there's no right or wrong answers. We're not going to answer them all or anything right now, but after you're done listening to this episode, kind of think about these questions and mull on them for a while for yourself. No guilt, you know, no shame based on what your answers are, but just think about it. Like when a society criminalizes victimless activities, like you know, sharing food with the homeless or picking wild foods in a park, are we ultimately choosing to consciously require that armed police go and uphold and enforce those laws? And like, how could that be causing harm? You know, have you ever worried about the police coming and arresting you when you've been foraging? You know, like, based on who you are, the answer could be yes or no. You know, like... Mm. How have these like impacted, you know, indigenous and and black communities and poor communities for, you know, generations because of fear of having to, you know, pay for, you know, breaking a law to do these things, you know, and it kind of made me think about like how, like, what am I going to do to decriminalize foraging for everyone because it's something I'm passionate about. Like I love foraging. So I want everyone to have that opportunity. But am I afraid or are you afraid that uh, if we decriminalize foraging for everyone, it could make it harder to do our own foraging and make it less accessible because more people have access to it. So like I said, like no right or wrong answers or shame on like what comes up, but it was just kind of like, I thought about it and I was like, huh, well that, that explains why making change has been difficult because those are hard questions. They're hard answers too. Like, I mean. Yeah. And they're expansive answers. I think most of the time too, because it's like, like an analogy we use at work a lot, or at least I use at work a lot is like you flip over a rock and like you find 10 snakes. So, you know, you flip over. Okay. It seems like really easy. Oh, we'll just overturn all these laws. But then you, we, like we talked about, you talk about like, okay, the state national parks, is somebody going to go in there and be irresponsible? Does it make sense? You know? to keep those laws in the city because maybe there's even the angle of it's protecting somebody because what if there's like weed killer on that, on that weed and it's fresh and it hasn't killed it yet. Or, you know, just like you can just go through so many scenarios. So these are really complex issues. And I think part of it is like, it's just really hard to unravel legislation once it's gone through. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, but I do think that we're, you know, thoughtful, we're, we're thoughtful creatures and have the ability to like think through things. But I think it's important. And, you know, this is something that you and I talked about is um, 
there can be multiple truths in a situation. Like anti-foraging laws can be, you know, inherently racist and classist, but also be something that protects an area from getting overforaged. But like, does either of those things like make them right or wrong? You know, like, I'm not going to answer that question because I, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, like, I think we all answer that based on what our individual experiences and values are. And we can feel really passionately about our immediate answer as being the right one or the good one. But the truth is, I think both answers, like, I, I mean, not on the racist and classist thing. Like, you can't say, like, yeah, that was a good thing. And I don't think anyone would. But I do think some people, I know, <laughs> but I do think some people would say that, yeah, protecting these things from being overforaged, like, is still important. So even though those laws are rated, are rooted in racism and classism, they're doing good now because of this situation. Like, I could see somebody answering that, you know, even though, like, my immediate, because my experiences and my values automatically make me see the other one as more important. So I would, you know, fight tooth and nail to say that that one was the right one. But, like, is it? You know, it's just more introspective questions. It's complicated. (laughs) Yeah. So we highly encourage you, especially if this is something you're feeling very passionate about, to maybe look into your local laws and ordinances, if there are any, about foraging. See what your state has to say. And then it doesn't hurt to do some more digging, too, on like the historical and federal level, if that's something you're interested in. But you can definitely, I mean, we have the internet. You can find ways to get involved if this is something you're feeling a certain type of way about. So we encourage that. Absolutely. Yeah. And we look forward to chatting about it with you more in our Facebook group. If anybody's got any questions or they want to dive a little deeper, like we're there for it. Yes. And then we're going to go talk more on the after hours. So be sure to go check that out if you're not already a Patreon peep at the $5 level and above. So go do that. Also check out our show notes, drinkandfarm.com slash 231. Or you can use giftzeroclux.com slash 231. Both will get you to the same place. Our Patreon shoutouts for this episode are Ashley Davis, Tonya Harold, Kimberly Taylor, and DC Teitzel. Cheers to our MV peeps. All right. So that's it. Yeah. Until next time. Drink. Farm. And, and zero, zero clocks. Bye now. <laughs> Bye. We drink things. We farm things. We drink and farm things.